Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Always a pleasure to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man, I think it's fair enough to say, probably didn't make quite as much of a mark as a footballer as some of the people that we've had on the show, but he certainly had a fair say in what has happened in football for a few decades now is the Bulldogs' president, Peter Gordon, and he's with me in the studio. Pete, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. How was your footy career, by the way? I think you've summarised it reasonably accurately. (laughs) Uh, Well, just give us a synopsis of it, if you could. Uh, Yeah, I broke into the uh, Christ King Primary School uh, grade six team in about round 10 when the coach's son got injured, and he put me on as 19th man in the second quarter. I think I had one kick, and it went the wrong way. Uh, and that was it for the next four years. And then I got a game with uh, Sunshine YCW, and all I can remember about that is lying face down in a mud heap in the goal square after my opponent kicked his seventh, which was, I think, 15 minutes into the second quarter. (laughs) So certainly um, not quite to the standard of uh, a man you know well who was a guest on this program a couple of weeks ago, Bob Murphy. Oh, no, I think that's – I think if there's one person I do – no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Rob's a great footballer. Did you hear the interview with Bob? Because yeah, he was um, he was very expansive about that time and what happened around that flag that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Yeah, he was. I, I enjoyed it a lot. He was a good chap. Um, and hopefully the same thing will happen with us. I've spoken to presidents of football clubs say, you have to be mad to be a president of a football club. Do you have to be doubly mad to do it twice? Oh, probably. I'm not sure there's a lot of people who've done it twice. Jeff Kennett's probably done it yeah. uh, twice. It's certainly not an economically rational uh, decision, unless your career sort of revolves around it, like Eddie's does. Uh, for example, he has a real synergy between his football media career and uh, footy, but it generally costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time. I certainly know that when I stopped being president in 1997, my legal career uh, took off because you know it wasn't just the time it was the headspace and those were difficult years running the Footscray footy club we had a pretty hostile AFL it really wanted less teams in Melbourne and so it was a little bit like uh, the North Vietnamese in the Vietnam War you sort of you know, up against it um, but and constantly kind of trying to run a guerrilla war to stay alive. So what convinced you to take it on a second time Pete because you are a very busy man with your profession um, being a president of a football club could basically be a full-time job in itself. Why did you do it a second time, knowing what you knew from the first step? Oh, it was a sense of unfinished business. I'd had a lot of success in my legal career, and I, I really felt uh, with the Bulldogs like that I was 
Yeah, several things, I guess, Peter, now that I, now that I reflect on it. Uh, when I first became president in 1989, I didn't have a brass razor. Um, and I was, often used to dream about what it would be like to actually have a bit of money to throw around and, and, and a bit of time. And by the time 2012, 2013 uh, came around, I, I was fortunate enough to be in that sort of uh, position. I also felt that I'd, I'd learned a little bit. You know, I'd, I'd, I guess I'd always, I'd come into the job uh, originally in 1989 when they were trying to uh, destroy the Bulldogs and I, I took a pretty aggressive attitude and I, I think that carried over into the first few years that I, I, I ran the presidency and I, I, I thought that there might be, that I'd probably learned a little bit of wisdom over the over the years and there were more ways to deal with people uh, rather than pointing your finger at them and, and being uh, aggressive. I, in summary, I, I, I felt like I could do a better job of it. I felt like it was unfinished business uh, and it felt like a, a real challenge. Well, the business was certainly finished and it uh, it was about three years ago, a little less than three years ago, when the um, what was the the sign that George Bush put up, mission accomplished, mission which accomplished. was slightly premature at the time, yeah. but you could certainly say that, and we'll touch on that a little bit later on. What was the thing that you learnt from your first stint that you took into your second stint that proved to be invaluable for you? Is there anything? Oh, I think that the times suited me a little bit uh, as well in that. I think that both Andrew Demetrio, but in particular Gillan McLaughlin, had a, a broader sense that uh, a competition which truly embraced principles of competitive balance, um, that is to say draft, salary cap, but also importantly the ability of every club to pay the salary cap, uh, could actually make for a better competition. We actually see that you know, every week these days in the sense that you know, if, if you pick more than four or five last week in last week's game, you're doing pretty well because mm-hmm. on any given Sunday, any team can win. And uh, that's that's not an accident. That's a, that's an outcome of the AFL thinking through that having nine games a week rather than two that everyone wants to watch because they're exciting is a, is a good thing. Now, um, with due respect to the people who ran the competition back then, they were only interested in the two or three blockbusters and the growth of the interstate uh, clubs. And so that was a really important uh, element of it from from my point of view. And to be able to contribute to that competitive balance debate, I went to New York with uh, with Gil and with Andrew Demetri at the uh, at the end of that um, at, of that first year, and we cemented those 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 principles. So the times kind of suited me uh, in that way, and I was able to work with the AFL administration. I guess the times also suited me in the sense that back then in the nineteen eighties, the western suburbs of Melbourne were described as the deprived west, and no one who was on the AFL commission saw much economic opportunity there. And they'd come out to the, the Witten Oval or the Western Oval and, and uh, describe it as a basket case and embarrassing, uh, etc. But fast forward to 2013 and the Western region of Melbourne is, is probably the fastest growing population demographic in the country. Uh, and you know the, the, the centre of Melbourne is moving westward and the strategic importance of a club in the, in the west of Melbourne is... You know, really important to the AFL as a whole. So you had a lot of those factors that were um, that are moving in in, in favour of the club, and I guess I was in a good position to exploit those. Um, uh, so I saw a lot of opportunities, and as I said to you, I kind of felt like I'd learned a little bit through seven years of doing it doing it pretty hard. Speaking of the Witten Oval or the Western Oval in the previous incarnation. Lots of people in football have things that are important to you. That that very ground, that space is intrinsically linked to you, isn't it? It's pretty dear to your heart. Yeah, 
reading a lot in recent years about um, Indigenous culture and Indigenous people. There's this concept uh, that our Indigenous people embrace that they belong to the land rather than land belongs to to them. And that's, I think, how a lot of Bulldog people, and certainly I feel about the the Witten Oval, I feel I belong to that land. I, I live in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne now, have for the, almost the last 15, 20 years, uh, I guess. But I'll tell you a story. I, I, I think it was in 2012 that Charlie Sutton died, and I wasn't president at that time, but I, I heard it on the on the news at about four o'clock one afternoon whilst um, whilst at my home in Hawthorne. And I just felt that I had to go to the Witten Oval. I, I'm not even sure why. And I... I, I I, I drove there. I got there at six o'clock, and um, the CEO's um, EA, Joe Parr, who is, who is still there now, sort of saw me, recognised me. Said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "I don't know. I just felt like I had to be here um, because critical moments in your life um, somehow related to to that ground. You know, the fight to save the club. Um, you know, going there for the first time with my dad, the rally to save the club." Um, even the celebrations, like the day after we won the premiership in 2016. And I remember looking out through some pretty bleary eyes <laughs> across, Lord only knows what the number of that crowd was. But as far as you could see, there were people there who'd come because they wanted to share that, you know, exquisite moment. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really important place to a whole lot of people, and I'm one of them. Do you remember the very first time you went there? Yeah, I kind of do. I, I can kind of remember um, looking between guys' legs or between the, 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 the suit pants of guys because so many more men went to the game in suits um, uh, back in those days. And I was on the um, uh, the Gordon Street uh, flank and I, remember, I can remember my dad's voice talking to someone and shouting out a few things. And I remember two players in particular, one, Alan Mannix, who was number eight, yeah. and a guy called John Gillard, who was the only other guy apart from EJ Witten who would ever be a chance to get in the Victorian team. Um, at the time, we used to. Wait he used to wear the anklets. Um, right. yeah. Twenty-five, I think he was, John yeah. Diller. Yeah. yeah, and um, so if ever he actually got nominated in the Victorian <laughs> squad, that was a big day in the Gordon household because, you know, we we used to watch obviously the footy replays and the football inquest on a on a Saturday night, and you'd see the same old teams, you know, Collingwood, Carlton, and um, it was a really rare event for the Bulldogs uh, to be on. We was we we were. You very much got the impression I did as a kid under the age of, of 10 that our team sort of didn't have the kind of largest, struggling with the word, the cachet, I guess, of mm. of other clubs. And there's a funny thing, last just last week we were playing Collingwood and uh, Eddie Maguire sat me next to Barry Price, uh, which is a real thrill for me because, uh, you know, although I'm not a Collingwood supporter, obviously, I remember so much those black and white uh, replays on a Saturday night and, you know, seeing Barry Price drilling the ball. <laughs> Yeah, you know, lace out of Peter McKenna's chest. He's, yeah. he's very much part of my sort of background, you know, in as a as a footy fanatic from the sixties. What was the number you wore on your jumper as a kid? So I was number three, um, and that was a choice that my mum and dad made for me. And they also got me a poster of uh, EJ Witten, which I think was kind of the iconic thing. I mean, Ted, in a in a sense, was bigger than the club. You know, he was a he was sort of the ultimate showman, and he used to appear on World of Sport. And um, uh, in in some ways, he was kind of disconsonant with the very humble uh, club that, that the Bulldogs were. Um, I remember, we, you know, my dad would take me to the barber shop in Ashley Street, West Footscray, and there's this you know big poster of of him taking 
um, doing a you know doing a fake walk for the cameras, and uh, then another one of him looking on as Merv Hobbs took mark of the century, mm. and uh, yeah, they were sort of the, the the emblems of my childhood. You know, you'd go to the barber shop where all the men would gather on a Saturday morning to get the the short back and sides. There'd be these these photos of um, of this iconic uh, guy. When I used to go to um, uh, the ground for the first time and watch training, and I used to ride my bike. Uh, it wasn't so much um, EJ, who was a guy that I sort of related to uh, myself. I, I saw much more in common with uh, a guy like George Bissett, who was <laughs> about my height, yes. <laughs> maybe, maybe even a little bit uh, smaller, not built like he was going to be an elite athlete, but with an, uh, just an immense amount of cheek um, and irrepressibility. Uh, uh, to him, and uh, yeah, I remember guys like him, and there was a, a young fellow called Charlie Pagnocolo who used to be the, t- the two of them were the roving pair um, that played. I was down there on a Tuesday night once in fading light when there was always in those days, you know, we were perennially pretty ordinary, um, but there was also always the hope that that there'd be some kid who'd be drafted from somewhere in the Latrobe Valley, which was our recruiting grounds in those days, and you know, there were. You know, one year, I think there was talk about this recruit, and I think a guy called John Hine came down, and then there was um, uh, Ian Salmon, and then the next year the talk came up again, and then this it was mentioned this kid called Bernie Quinlan, and I was actually there the first night that that Bernie Quinlan uh, trained with the uh, with the footy club, and I remember him taking a kick from the wing of the Whitnave, kicking to the Geelong Road end, and it 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 went it went through the goals at about head height. I swear it must have been 85, 90 metres. And, and those are the sort of things that when you're a kid, barracking for a team who are perennial losers, you just get that hope in your heart of, you know, maybe something's possible. And that's what I think most attached me to the to the Footscray Footy Club. Great to have you with us for this very special feature episode with Peter Gordon, the Western Bulldogs president, on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Back with more after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Great to have you with us for this very special feature episode with Peter Gordon, the Western Bulldogs president on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You talked about that pull that you had when Charlie Sutton passed away. Do you remember the night that EJ passed away and it was announced on the footy show? And I think we any of us who knew him were touched by that night. What was your recollection of that night, Pete? I remember more um, the lap of the oval he did with uh, yeah. with his son, Ted Junior. I, I knew Ted because uh, Ted Junior, because he was um, on our match committee. He was you know, one of uh, Terry Wheeler's. Uh, main men and, and so I knew uh, Ted quite well in those in those days and to see the two of them going around um, in such a, a big crowd was a was a, a massive a massive thing um, as I say it, it's always been a curious thing uh, for me because he, he tended to bestride both the club and and the western suburbs as, a, as Shakespeare would say like a colossus mm. he was almost bigger than the uh, the club and it just seemed almost compulsory to rename the oval after him uh, he'd already had a grandstand uh, named after him in those days. I'd only met him a few times. The first time I actually uh, like met him face-to-face, I'd, I'd just become president of the club uh, in late 19, 
89 and, and he, he turned up to the annual general meeting um, you know, two-thirds of the way the way through and he sort of got a standing ovation as soon as he appeared at the door. He walked up to the um, to the top of the stage and it was like a four-foot stage where I was and I felt the, the right thing to do on the microphone was to acknowledge him and reach out and shake his hand and I had no idea that he had a unique way of oh, yeah. shaking people's hand. <clears throat> he did. So uh, I put my hand out. And the next thing, I'm flat on the floor because, <laughs> because he pulled me forward and off the stage. And um, I'm not sure it was the most dignified first AGM of an incoming president, but um, but it's a memory. Yeah, he broke a few bones in hands over the years, I think, EJ, with his, uh, with his shaking of the hand. How did he react to you as a young man coming in as the president of the football club? Did he keep a respectful distance or was he saying to you, this is my club and this is the way things need to be done here? Oh, no. He, look, you know, um, let's just be you know, frank about it. I guess he was working at K-Rock down mm. at Geelong at the time um, and he had, um, I won't say sided with the VFL, but uh, I became president in the context of a war to keep the Bulldogs alive and there were a number of... Uh, people who had, if not given up on that fight, at least accepted the VFL's edict that Footscray had uh, lost the economic rationale and the right, really, to exist. And Ted, um, I think, grieved the the passing of uh, the Footscray Football Club, but he accepted it. Uh, And he was on the TV at the time saying, hey, I see these people, these lifelong Bulldog supporters, I I worry about them, what the future holds, because it's not going to be easy for them. Um, but I think that the VFL had done a very effective job with a number of people, including him, of saying there's no future in supporting this and you know, we won't, we won't uh, necessarily be thrilled if you do. I remember um, organising the rally. Uh, the day before I organised the rally, I, I had a picture in my mind of the way in which I was going to make the speech to try and uh, rally support. And as part of it, I planned to announce that the, we were going to get we were going to play on in 1990, and I wanted to get the team to come out to come out of the race. Here's the team that's going to play next year, and I, I managed to organise a meeting with them at the Great Western Hotel in King Street in Melbourne. Not all of them wanted to do it because a lot of them had been promised lucrative contracts with the Fitzroy Bulldogs. It was actually some of the players who uh, weren't given much of a chance. Who were most who were most eager to uh, to do it in their own commercial interests, and I, I would also choose to believe out of loyalty. So I, I kind of uh, remember guys like Steve McPherson, Rick Kennedy, um, Barry Stanfield, and Tony Liberatore in particular, saying yeah, we will be there. But there are others who um, you might have you might have expected to be more enthusiastic about it, and I don't, I don't I'm not critical of those guys now, but. Um, the VFL had done a pretty fair PR job <laughs> leading up to October 1989. Were the VFL hell-bent on getting rid of you? or Hell-bent, hell yeah. I so it, it went beyond – did you feel as though it went beyond a commercial reality at that stage and that they just had the number in the frame, so to speak, and they weren't going to deviate and come hell or high water, that was what was going to happen? Yes, I do. You bet I do. I think that they um, were on a mission – and I think that they'd been, ever since a, a convention I think they'd had down in Tasmania in 1985, um, they saw that the future was, um, and I think they, they used to def- almost like trademark the term truly national competition. Um, and I you know, 
I support a national competition, um, but they saw, they saw it as absolutely essential to that to cut deeply into the number of Melbourne teams. So we weren't the only team on their radar. And as I think the next six or seven years demonstrated, um, there were a number of clubs that were at risk. The very year after we ran our um, fight for survival, the, the Tigers, the Richmond Football Club, now a powerhouse, of course, of the competition um, under Neville Crow ran the Save Our Skins mm. uh, campaign. And, yeah, they're in, they in some strife. North are in some strife. St Kilda are in some uh, some strife. And, of course, uh, Fitzroy. I always admired the Fitzroy Footy Club board because I thought they they fought a really heroic struggle really creatively over a number of years. I think they, you know, the, I think they, you know Bernie, the attorney, yeah. <laughs> stumped up. Hundreds of thousands of dollars to save at one point. It was almost like every time the VFL, AFL thought they had them boxed in, they found some way out of it. And um, I, I, you know, people tend to define their, their their lives and careers in terms of success and failure. But I myself, you know, I'm admirer of people who, if they fail heroically, if they put everything they can into it, and um, and I, I, I think the, the the fight to save Fitzroy ultimately failed, but. It was an heroic failure. What was the difference? Why did Fitzroy's fight fail and why did yours succeed? Well, I think that um, the, you know, some accidental factors, like we went first uh, and we were the first group, um, activist group, I guess, to stand up to the VFL and say, hell no, we won't go. And I think that that uh, up yours Oakley sticker which was, you know, the slogan really, the the catch cry uh, of the whole thing, really captured a creeping, a sort of a growing resentment that people had had over a number of years that they were becoming disenfranchised, disengaged, and not listened to by a group of big businessmen who increasingly, you know, uh, saw this as a sort of, if not multinational, then then certainly very big corporatist. And you had people like John Elliott preaching about what, you know what a real competition was, what a real club was. I think he at one point went on to describe the Bulldogs as having a tragic history, ironically. Mm. Um, and um, so, you know, you had these sort of captains of industry talking about this. You had the people who, the fans who were who were going and standing in the outer, um, who, who I, th- I think felt like they weren't being listened to. And I well remember um, a friend of mine, Dennis Gallenberti, who was um, the, the CEO of the Bulldogs at the time, and, um, Ira and Chatfield had got an interim injunction on the Friday before the rally and he came out of court and Channel 7 stuck a microphone uh, un- under him and he said, we want everyone to be out at the Western Oval uh, on the weekend because I promise you one thing, it might be the Bulldogs today, but it'll be a Richmond or a North Melbourne or a St Kilda uh, next time and, and think how you'll feel about it then. And I think that, that what he said there really captured something which we were able to distill over the next over the next few weeks and... Um, we raised an extraordinary amount of money. I, I kind of knew it was a three-week campaign. I kind of knew really on the Sunday night that we'd raised enough money to fix the the uh, shortfall requirements that we had. So I, I spent most of the last of, of the next three weeks planning the building of the business for the following year. And the last thing I did in the in the final week was go looking for a president because I was a lawyer and I, I thought my, my job is to um, uh, get in fix this problem and move on to the next case. And in the last few days of, of that campaign, I manoeuvred a meeting with the Premier of Victoria, John Kane, 
at the time because I wanted to. They'd cancelled the TAC sponsorship, and we got ICI to be a new sponsor. But I wanted to drag the TAC sponsorship back as well, and I um, threatened him in the nicest possible way that if the government were going to ignore this people's movement in in this way, that he might think about what the political consequences of that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, he, a, that's a pretty game thing to do to be almost um, telling the Premier of the state yeah, never mind what always. might happen. <laughs> that's, and, uh, yeah, but he was up for it. That's what politicians do. And uh, so he dragged me in for a meeting and, uh, and said, we're prepared to reinstate this sponsorship and there's only one condition, um, and that is that we want you to be the president. I'd actually been negotiating with his deputy premier, Robert Fordham, who was a local member at Footscray to be... Uh, president at the time, he was at, at the meeting. So I looked at him and he kind of smiled and raised his eyebrows. And So I guess I was, I was fishing for a compliment. I said, oh, well, that's nice, Mr. Premier. Why do you want me to do it? He said, I'll tell you why, because I reckon this is going to fail. I think you're going to fall on your face spectacularly over the next few years. And when it does, we want someone to blame and that person's going to be you. So just bear in mind when you do this job that it's our money that you're spending. And if it all comes to grief, we're going to be pointing the finger at you. So, How did you react to that? Um, uh, <laughs> I was um, I was pretty shaken up, what? And uh, I I literally hadn't. I'm not sure if everyone that I've told this story to actually believes it, but I had given no thought to the idea of becoming president of the club myself on an ongoing basis uh, until until that moment at all. And I had I think been um, made a partner the law firm that I then worked for. Uh, and I'd been a partner for all of two weeks. So I'd never been an employer before, um, and I'd never worked in a footy club before, and I'd only been involved in, in this thing for a few weeks. So uh, it was a bit of a shock to the system, and there were a lot of, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of big things that happened in that, in, in that three weeks. I'll, I'll, one other story that I'll, I'll tell you that I think I learned from between Stint 1 and Stint 2 is that one of the VFL commissioners at the time was Peter Scanlon, a guy I've come to admire um, a bit, uh, but in those days I didn't know him at all. And he reached out to me in week two of the campaign to say, look, there's been a lot of strong words said in relation to this. There's been a lot of hurt feelings and there's a lot of uh, you know, unrest in the community. And it's, it's kind of up to us to try and forge a way forward. We think that, you know, it's pretty clear you're going to survive now and you know, we, our role ought to be to help you. And so I'd like to talk about how we might make peace together and work together going forward and he, he actually came to my office to deliver that deliver that message and I said to him yeah well I don't believe a word of that and uh, we think we've got you on the ropes and we're 10 days into a campaign we've raised over a million dollars and we're going to keep going till the end of that three weeks we're going to raise as much money as possible and then we're going to tell our story and you can tell yours and I look back on that you know with the wisdom of hindsight and, and, and think that I just made a real mistake there and whilst I was doing it for the right reasons and just trying to maximise the fundraising momentum and, and I guess the militancy that had been engendered there, um, I could have done that a different way. I probably should have. Of all the famous things that EJ said, we stuck it up and was one of the most famous things. Is that yeah. the way you felt? No, I, I, I didn't. I, I felt a sense of desperation about the whole thing. I felt that I'd... I'd taken something on um, and had a responsibility to the people and I also felt um, increasingly over that period that something that had looked like it was a hundred to one was achievable um, 
to be truthful, you know, that sort of rhetoric of we stuck it right up and didn't particularly resonate with with me. Um, uh, I, I more have, if ever I take on a case, um, you know, a big class action or, or um, uh, venture, I, I, I feel obsessively consumed with responsibility to the people I'm, re- I'm representing. And I felt like I was representing the, the, the people there. In the end, I'm a lawyer um, who accidentally became, as I've described, accidentally became president. But for three weeks of that, it was a case. It was a campaign. It had different elements to it. And there wasn't time for sort of that, that kind of rhetoric. Two last questions before we leave this subject. When you started this campaign, in your heart of hearts, did you think it would be successful or did you think that you just had to do it because it was the right thing to do? Or was it a combination of both? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of both. I'd really started the year before when in 1988 there was a campaign to move the Bulldogs from the Western Oval to Princess Park. And I started a movement called the Save the Dogs Committee, which the club were pretty unhappy about. Um, then they succumbed to political pressure and agreed to keep it at the Western Oval. But we felt the club was still at risk, and that's why we kept that group together for the following uh, 12 months. I was in Sydney on the day that the merger was announced, finishing off the Whitney Blue Asbestos Mine, you know, the Midnight Oil song, Blue mm. Sky Mine, was actually about that that uh, that case and those people. And so I, I, I'd heard from Dennis that it was going to happen, but then I saw it on the news uh, in Sydney. I flew back that night. I met up with Dennis... Uh, Irene, a few other people in the social club of the John Jen stand. And we actually had a debate that went for a few minutes there about whether we should uh, pivot and think about joining the VFA. Um, so I, I guess the fact that we did that reflects that no one had any real certainty about about it. You know, we, we got through that discussion and said, you know what, uh, bugger it, we're going to have a go at this. And when I um, addressed the faithful the following Sunday, um, oddly enough, the first the first line of the speech that I gave that day was also a Midnight Oil song. And it was, um, I, I said, I guess we're all here because we understand that it's better to die on your feet than live on your knees, which was a nod to, we understand that there might be a way we could have done this in the VFA or done something else, but we are adopting the principle of better to die on your feet than live on, live on your knees. And, and so we're going all out to try and save the Footscray Football Club. And the last question about this, Pete, you mentioned the famous bumper stickers. What's your relationship like with Ross Oakley? Yeah, it's good. Came to my 60th birthday um, uh, a year ago. I got to launch his book for him um, a, few, a few years ago. He was doing a job that was a difficult job in the best way that he uh, that he could, and I think he achieved a lot in terms of the creation of a national competition. I think that the times and the circumstances thrust us into opposing roles uh, with each other, and um, you know that the history of that is what it is. We had some pretty hard times together in the first in the first few years, but I, I admire his achievements, and I'm glad that um, we became friends over the course of the succeeding 30 years. It's what life's about, really, isn't it? It is indeed. And it's an incredible chapter in our great game. And it's been very informative to hear your take on it. There's a lot of other things that we need to talk about, but we also need to pay the bills. So I'll take a break and we'll come back on the other side of the break with the Western Bulldogs president, Peter Gordon, on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. 
You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying what is a fascinating chat with Peter Gordon, the Bulldogs president on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You'll forever be linked to saving the club. In your first stint there, what was the other thing that people don't remember as much that you were really proud of that you did for the footy club? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, The thing that I'm proudest of in my first stint at Footscray Football Club was 1996. You know, um, President John F. Kennedy once said about going to the moon, you know, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they were hard and they are hard. And there was a lot that was spectacular and it was exciting and history making about the Footscray fight back and you get a lot of accolades for it and people still talk about it, etc. 1996 was not like that. You know, 1996 was a year when we were on our knees, humiliated, forced to into seeking merger discussions ourselves with a whole number of clubs, having the uh, the supporters feel like we've betrayed them or let them let them down or behaved incompetently um, uh, or whatever. Every club was talking to every other club about merger that year. And, of course, um, North Melbourne and Fitzroy announced a merger, but then the uh, AFL intervened to make it with uh, Fitzroy. Melbourne and Hawthorne Melbourne with the Velcro Hawthorne. Hawk. Yep, of course. Yeah. And Don Scott's... Uh, Involvement in that, I had Bob Rose and Alan McAllister from Collingwood Football Club in my lounge room, suggesting a Collingwood Bulldogs um, alliance. They were tough times, and then, you know we we realised that after seven years, um, you know our, our race was kind of run, and we needed, and we ended up negotiating with David Smorgan and his group for him to take over. And David's another guy who I didn't start off on the right foot with, but has become a really good friend over the over the course of the journey. But in the course of that negotiation. Um, they said to us, um, you need to get the, the Footscray Council to waive a debt of $2 million over the over the, the grandstand. And so we're faced with that. You need to uh, help us to renegotiate the, the debt with the bank. And we did that. And you have to organise for Chris Grant to reject Port Adelaide and stay at the, the Bulldogs. And so there were a series of these things going on. And as we, as we knocked over each one... Uh, they either got the accolades for it or we copped the odium for it um, anyway. And um, so the solidarity that I felt with the core directors that I that I shared that obligation uh, with at the time, Peter Welsh, Mike Fearn, Adrian Fitzpatrick, is something that has always stayed with me. And I, I'm prouder of 1996, even though we finished second bottom and in... Yeah, and, and left in circumstances where no one thought we'd we'd done a, a, a good job. And I, I think that life is funny that way. They, I mean, uh, David's group had taken up the negotiations with Chris, but I got a phone call from Rick Kennedy the night before show day um, to say, "Look, he's gone. He's going to he's going to Port Adelaide, and it's going to be terrible for David's group to um, to enter into this new era of running the club with the very first thing being losing Chris Grant." I said, okay, so what, what do you want? He said, well, we want you to have the final meeting um, so that everyone sees that he went and it was your fault. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So I arranged to meet Chris and his manager, John Andrews, at the club the next day. It was pretty pretty deserted. I took in a couple of old car keys and we sat down in the room, just, just the three of us, um, and I threw the keys 
onto the coffee table. And Chris said, what are they? And I said, mate, they're the keys to the club. Because if you're going to Port Adelaide, you might as well lock the door behind you. And there's this moment of silence. And then he says, yeah, well, I'm not going to go. I, I, I really think I should stay. Um, and um, so I remember that as being a really, really big moment in my life. And so I communicated that back, I think, to Rick Kennedy. There was a, a function going on, like a grand final function or something at the Hilton Hotel. And they quickly sort of snapped into gear and organised for David and a couple of others, I think, to walk in with Chris and make and make that announcement. And I went home and I watched it on the... And I saw the newspapers unfold and the, the story about, you know, the new Bulldogs and Chris making this, this great decision. In some ways, that whole thing sort of it was a, a really sort of potent metaphor for... I feel really proud of 1996. I feel that you know, the work was unsung, it was unrewarded, but it was just as important to the continuity of a club with a history of struggle as that 89 fight back. With regards to Chris Grant, Pete, the story goes about the famous letter, and I think it was 20 cents. Mm-hmm. Did that play a serious part in his decision, do you think, or was it just one of those romantic stories that probably became bigger over the years? Oh, no, look, it happened. Um, it was a... <laughs> Because um, I think the letter was to me, um, and I think I had it in the in the room with me. It, it, it may have, it may have been a little bit embellished over the years, but there definitely was a letter. I think the kid's name surname was Adams. It definitely was uh, twenty cents sticky taped to to the letter, and it was if this helps, um, let me know. And if it wasn't critical in Chris's decision making process, let me say it would have been because. Um, you know, you've asked about a few players in the course of our discussion today, but I think for me, one of the main privileges that I've had as being as president of the club is that there are a small group of really, really exceptional people uh, at the club who understand its soul, players at the club, I mean, who understand its soul, who symbolise its 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 soul, its essence, and its unique nature. You know, the the oldest and most senior of those is John Schultz, who was just in a, you know, it's been great to have him back at the club. You know, he, he's sat with Bevo in the coach's box each of the last four or five years. He's always in there. And he's just a really noble character and generous and, you know, to me symbolises the the better angels of the, of the footy club. And Chris Grant's like that. You know, Rob Murphy's like that. Mm. And, and I see elements of that in a young Marcus Bond and Belly as well. And so to see to see these guys, that's not to be disparaging at any... I, there are so many of our players, past and present, that I admire. But there's a core of those guys that just seem to me to have an exceptional quality to them, not just of leadership, not just of, 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 of ability, but of a certain generosity of spirit that uh, I think makes it a real privilege to do the job that I do and see what they contribute. We're just about out of time reminiscing about those good times that you've had. But you mentioned one word there, expansion, in relation to the AFLW. When we come back with our final segment, I want to get your thoughts on expansion, perhaps in the men's game, and whether it does have a place. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Peter Gordon, the Western Bulldogs president, and we'll be back to wrap things up on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. 
Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with Peter Gordon on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. A flagged expansion, Pete. I'll talk to you about that in a moment, but one thing's just popped into my head. I want to get confirmation. You said you heard the Bob Murphy episode. He said that he had a stinking hangover on grand final day. Did he get reasonably wrecked grand final eve? Look, I don't think he did. Um, uh, they were the last to leave our place on on uh, on grand final morning, I think it was, at about you know, quarter to one, but he seemed in, in reasonably good shape on that day. We were, I think we were watching a replay of the, uh, of the preliminary final. It, it had been a great night. You know, Bob and Justine got there a little earlier um, uh, that night because Kerry and I just wanted to, to catch up with them, and, but then people started arriving early. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to hear him say that he misconducted himself um, in the way that he had. Perhaps he... Um, has a better way of disguising it than, than I do. Clearly. Um, and it was uh, a very frank admission, and we didn't expect that it was going to come. But then again, what happened the following <laughs> day, I don't think he cares one little bit. Yeah. Uh, one last question. We've talked about your journey in football and the hands-on business that you've had in football saved the football club in conjunction with a lot of other people. You've led your team to a famous premiership. Can you divorce yourself from the administrator's role and still be a footy fan? Are you still? Do you still have that joy that that little kid who used to run around with the number three on his back has about the game, or is it all a business to you? You know, I think I've evolved a, a fair bit, and probably you know, in no small part because we've we've won the flag. I guess also because we're out of debt now, and I don't feel a sense of went through many years thinking every time we lost a game, you'd expect a kind of negative component to the media saying, see, they shouldn't really be in it anyway. So I've kind of owned that uh, burden of, of, of responsibility about it. I will say to you that one of the things that, that led me back into the competition in 2013 is that I've been out of it for 16 years. And when I would go to games, and I started going to games a lot more towards, the, you know, towards uh, 20, 2009, 2010, 2011. But if we lost... I remember driving home and saying to Kerry, you know, it's really good not to be president because you can just forget about it and go home. And I thought to myself when I came back into it in 2013, it'll be the same. But if anything, I was worse. You know, um, I, I had um, games at Etihad Stadium, as it then was in 2013, 2014, where I'd get to half time and I'd have to spend the third quarter pacing the car park because I was so tense about about what was going on and with zero ability to impact um, to impact the whole thing. Now, I hope that when I get to retire... Um, I'll lose a bit of that, that intensity, but uh, that's what footy passion does to you, I guess. Pete, when we walked into the studio, I didn't think we were going to be spending as long as we have, but it's been just captivating to hear. And that is just part one of our special feature episode with Peter Gordon for Tobin Brothers Funerals on This Is Your Sporting Life. We'll be back next week for part two. Hope you can join us then. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.